Does your skin color determine your health? Whether or not it should, the answer in short is yes. When it comes to diabetes, heart disease, kidneys, hypertension, the Centers for Disease Control reports that historically, the African-American community faces far higher rates of poor outcomes and death than any other demographic. The pandemic has further highlighted these racial inequities in healthcare. A CDC study reported that 34% of COVID deaths have been among, quote, non-Hispanic black people, even though this demographic accounts for only 12% of the total U.S. population. This is And Another Thing. I'm Maya Schwader. I'm Dara Kennedy. The theme of this year's Black History Month celebration is Black health and wellness. On today's show, we want to talk not only about health inequities, but also discuss some solutions that are in play, specifically in our region. Spoiler alert, education is a big component. Also, funding. And this may seem obvious, but just as important is providing African Americans with access to quality care, which, as our next guest explains, they have been historically and systematically kept away from. We are joined now by the president and CEO of the Connecticut Health Foundation, Tiffany Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start out with looking at the, the history of health inequality. How has that history trickled down to today? What does it look like? How is it still affecting the populations and the communities of people of color? What we have to remember is that we are living in the system that we historically designed. And what I mean by that is that we created an environment, a system, we created laws where people of color are disadvantaged. And what what example of that is thinking about even our laws around redlining and housing, where they were designated to live, meant that there were less resources. You might ask, how does that impact us today? Well, our health isn't just going to the health system or going to a hospital or going to a doctor. Our health is encompassed around our ability to access the resources that make us healthy. It's all those things that are around us, which oftentimes are coined the social determinants of health. The historical context by which we live in has created an environment where people of color are economically disadvantaged, disadvantaged related to education, housing, and other critical resources that impact all of our health. But our organization is really focused on breaking down the systemic structures that make it more challenging for people of color to live their healthiest lives. So it's a full 360 environmental issue. This isn't just people of color not wanting to go to the doctor. It is not about people of color not wanting to go to the doctor. It is about people of color not being in an environment that isn't promoting their healthiest life. It's about people of color and their experiences when they go to the doctor. So let's not um, fool ourselves that we also are living in an environment where there are a lot of stereotypes around people of color. And often that even shows up in our healthcare system. It's about people of color having the jobs where they can even enter the health system at a reasonable time. Think about your doctor's office, the fact that normally it is nine to five. And again, when you think about the history and the jobs that people of color often are having right now because of the history, they often can't make it to a doctor at nine to five. And so there are so many other factors than the personal 
place that or, or the personal onus that we put on people and say, oh, they just don't want to be healthy. No, they may not have the neighborhood where they can walk in safely. They may not have access to the grocery stores where they can get the healthy food. They may live in a food desert. They may have been in an environment where they didn't have access to the best education so that they can get a job that's nine to five so that they can take a break in the middle of the day to go see the doctor. There are so many structural factors that contribute to one's ability to be healthy that is not just personal. So a person who is feeling ignored, stereotyped, misdiagnosed, mistreated, as we know happens, in a practical sense, where do they end up turning? So that's the unfortunate part. They end up either turning away from the healthcare system, and what that results in is an increased severity in conditions. So if you feel like you are not being heard and you're ignored, you may go home where maybe you have family members that can give you home remedies or other things like that. But oftentimes that results in people not entering the healthcare system. So your organization, the Connecticut Health Foundation, was created specifically to look at and address these kinds of health disparities. What does your work look like right now? What are some of the biggest disparities that you're focused on on solving? Primarily, some of the indicators that we look at are the prevalence and the outcomes for diabetes, asthma, hypertension, and maternal health, which all have very high disparities here within our state amongst people of color. And we are watching those indicators very closely. What we're focused on is making sure, number one, that people have access to the healthcare system. But we recognize as an organization that you cannot improve what you're not measuring. And so we also are really pushing the state to focus on the collection of race, ethnicity, and language data with the intent to then develop interventions to improve outcomes for people of color. We really see community health workers as a critical workforce for people of color because, again, these are individuals who are from the community and of the community that can help people of color navigate this complicated system. And we have seen community health workers and their value across the healthcare system. And we also recognize that all of this work needs to be done through what we deem as systems change. So really changing the policies and the practices that impact one's health. A lot of what you have been describing here would involve a lot of sea changes in the medical community and just our environment. Are you getting pushback on any of these from your colleagues in the medical community? When we first started as an organization, 20 plus years ago, we did receive a lot of pushback and a lot of questions as to why we are focused on this work and in health disparities. I think that the past couple of years has illuminated and essentially put a spotlight on how the structural issues that we have been trying to combat have really impact the health, not just for one, but for all. And I say that because we saw in COVID-19 the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. 
And so I feel like we are at a pivotal point where there is an increased focus on understanding the disparities that we are facing in our system and the need to really direct resources and energy into that. Even our state, just this past legislative session, passed a bill that really looked at health disparities across the board and has increased their focus as well as their resources on solving that. I really think that we are at a time where we can all work together to really mitigate these issues. I will say that, again, we are dealing with a structure that has been built and was created hundreds of years ago. We're not going to turn this around tomorrow, but what we do need are the willing who are able and can put in the energy and focus to turn this around. Tiffany Donaldson is the president and CEO of the Connecticut Health Foundation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to hear your insights. Thank you for having me. Another prominent disparity in health outcomes is maternal health and the glaring difference between Black and white women when it comes to pregnancy and giving birth. Nationwide, Black women are more likely to have comorbidities, complications, and mortalities in pregnancy and childbirth than any other demographic. According to the Massachusetts State Department of Public Health, African-American women are about twice as likely as white women to experience pregnancy-related deaths. In Connecticut, the Department of Public Health says Black women are 2.6 times as likely as white women to die within six weeks of childbirth. One solution birthing parents can turn to is doulas, a person who assists and advocates to a medical team on behalf of an expectant mother. Being a doula or a birth assistant is an ancient practice, possibly dating back as much as 5 million years. That's per a 2009 study from the University of Delaware. Here in the present day, more recent research points to increased health benefits for the mother and the child when a doula is present. We spoke with Laconia Fennell and Tanita Council, co-founders of Springfield Family Doulas, a care center targeted specifically at women of color in Western Mass. We asked about how their services help expectant parents. It actually has been proven. It's actually um, documented that doulas are a benefit and does reduce the negative outcomes of black women numerous of of studies. Um, So by being there and actually having it done and being a witness of it, you can necessarily see just by something as simple as lowering the mom's cortisone on what's actually going on in the hospital around her. To actually have somebody beside her who wants the best out of her best outcome to benefit from a mom being in labor. Sometimes you'll have a mom who actually feels pressured into doing what somebody wants her to do instead of what she desires to do for her own body. Um, and sometimes that requires with her not knowing um, the, risk, the risks and benefits of each medicine that she tries to take. Um, so sometimes we can be the advocacy, all right? We can be the advocacy on sometimes on doctors' behalf by letting mom know exactly what's going on, as well as being the advocate for the mom to actually have them understand the best advocate to go along with the birth. Not all insurance companies cover the cost of doulas. To mitigate this, Massachusetts State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa has introduced an act that would extend Medicaid coverage to doula services. But while that bill received a favorable report, ultimately no action was taken. Ms. Council explains how doulas like herself get around the current lack of insurance options. It does create kind of a barrier, but at the same time, we do, we, we do know, understand our desire for our community. So we do offer sliding scales. We offer... Um, if you are some type of assistance, 
some type of sliding sale to help you. We do barter, which means if you have a service that we can have and, you know, we can offer our service, so we do barter. We want to understand where our community is coming from. So we want to match our, our needs for our community. So we try to do the best to make sure that our dual services is, is well broadened out there to, to people who need it. Ultimately, the co-founder said, a doula is there to educate and help the expectant parent on what they might not understand about what giving birth is really like. Sometimes it's just a form of communication. We watch movies, we watch TV shows, and we see women giving birth and think it's automatically going to happen that way. A lot of women don't have no education what's actually going on in their body, what's actually going on when labor is happening, as well as how to calm their fears when this stuff is happening and how most of the, a lot of this stuff is normal. Um, we have this depiction of, you know, your water break, automatically you have to push the baby out from the TV. So by us being doulas, our main job is to educate moms to what exactly is going on in the body. So yes, missing information and giving information is one of our major parts of what we need to do or what we do do. That was Laconia Fennell and Tanita Council, co-founders of Springfield Family Doulas. After the break, a family doctor shares how she's built relationships with patients of color and advises them on ways to advocate for inclusivity in healthcare. You're listening to And Another Thing. Stay with us. Welcome back to And Another Thing with Maya Schrader. I'm Dara Kennedy. As we celebrate Black History Month, we're learning more about the voids of healthcare inequities in the African-American community, the racial inequities in healthcare systems, and some of the solutions to close the gap. As we heard earlier on the show, it's a multifaceted, complicated problem. Some people of color, especially African-Americans, just don't have access to quality care further perpetuating more health problems and negative outcomes. But that lack of trust, shorthanded access, and misunderstanding of the community starts early. As our next guest explains, racial disparities show up even in the way medical students are taught. Joining us now is Dr. Jennifer Bradford. She specializes in family and addiction medicine with UMass Memorial Health in Worcester. Dr. Bradford, thank you so much. There is a lot to say about treatment disparities and outcome disparities for patients of color. When you are in the room with a patient, what do those disparities look like? A lot of those health disparities are preventable because I think that a lot of those health disparities are due to structural racism. Some of these embedded inequities within our, our medical system actually impacts the healthcare of our patients. Like for example, there had been a belief that you know black people have lower lung capacity as compared to their white counterparts, and um, this belief grew out of racial inferiority principles. And so, what we do now in medicine is sometimes we use a race correction. We use it for you know to check for um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. When we use spirometry to measure lung capacity, when we use race corrections, that could actually negatively impact the care that some of our African-American patients. And so what I may see in my office is that a patient will have had long-standing renal failure, and then they may be at the more severe stages of needing treatment. So have you ever had a situation where you're talking to a patient and they say, you know, I've, I've actually never, never said this to a doctor before. I've never told a doctor about this before. And they feel more comfortable because of who you are? Definitely. I mean, I have had full conversations about 
racism and disparities than my clinical appointments. I really try to create a space where my patients are able to talk about some of the experiences they've had, you know, maybe being pulled over by police or, you know, just some of those experiences that impact health, that impacts our mental health. And so I've had patients who will, you know, talk to me about some of those experiences. And I know they're not, you know, discussing those issues with people of non-color because they don't feel comfortable in that space necessarily. And they don't feel as if that provider will relate to some of their, some of that trauma. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you see about people of color within the medical community? Uh, I think some of the most common misconceptions are that um, people of color are not compliant, that they do not care about their help. I think those are the, the top two things that I have run across. I find that sometimes if a provider has a bias, even if it's, you know, it's an unconscious bias and thinks that a person of color will not follow through with a medication regimen, then sometimes that provider will not prescribe that medication regimen or even discuss it because they've already made a decision that that individual will not follow through with the prescribed care. A lot of times what I've experienced is that when a patient does not follow through, with a prescribed regimen, it's, it's not because they do not care about their health, but it's, they may have a mistrust regarding the advice or the medication. And so it's really important to talk about, you know, what is it that is making you hesitant to follow through with care instead of creating a narrative that specific individuals based on race, which is a social construct, will not follow through with certain medical advice. So while we're waiting for medical schools to, to overhaul and start educating a new generation of doctors without this uh, race correction in there, what is being done in the community right now to try to you know, bridge these outcomes? Well, one is, is education, education of our patients, uh, making sure that they learn how to advocate for themselves. And that's something that I really try to discuss with my patients. And I think a lot of times, you know, people of color and especially underserved communities don't feel as if they have that power to do that, to actually say, wait a minute, what does that mean? You know, when a, when a physician explains complicated terms or treatment options, you know, just having patients stop and, and try to, to learn more about what the physician is saying. But then also, I think that educating our, our providers is, is, I think that's a really important thing that we're doing, educating our providers and, and teaching them about racism, microaggressions, and bias. Because I think at, at this point, you know, if we can't overhaul the whole system at this point, then we will have to work at an individual level and recognize our, our biases as we are interacting with patients so that we could try to change some of the, some of the way that we're thinking and improve the health outcomes of our population, and specifically our Black population. Dr. Bradford is a family medicine specialist with UMass Memorial Health in Worcester. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. As we heard from our last guest, the lack of doctors of color can create further deterrences for African Americans to seek the medical help they may need. But recently, there's been a historic milestone. A record high number of African American students have been accepted to American medical schools, a reported increase of more than 20% from a year ago. GBH Radio higher education reporter Kirk Carapeza tells us how Tufts Medical School in Boston has tripled the number of black students admitted there. Growing up in northern New Jersey, Sabrina Lima says her mom, a nurse, inspired her to pursue a career as a doctor. 
I've been on like medical missionary trips with her. So seeing her in medicine, she's just like, she's just an amazing woman. I just love how she serves others. And I want to serve people in a similar way. The daughter of Haitian immigrants, Lima says both of her parents encouraged her to apply to medical school. For Haitian kids, either you're a doctor, lawyer, or you're an, an engineer. So when I said I want to be a doctor, like they're not going to be like, no, why would you want to do? Like They're like, yeah, my kid wants what I want for them. But they never pushed it. Last year, she was accepted into Tufts Medical School, where last fall, the number of new students who identify as Black or African American jumped from nine the year before to 26. Across the country, the number of first-year Black students in the U.S. is way up. 21%, an unprecedented spike since 2020. We have never seen such an increase within a short amount of time. That's Norma Pohl Hunter. She leads workforce diversity efforts at the Association of Medical Colleges, and she points to research that shows across all races, patients are more likely to report satisfaction with their care when their doctors look like them. But only 5% of the country's doctors are Black. When black physicians, male physicians are working with black male patients, we see better outcomes in preventative care or on cardiac care. Um, we've also seen that in terms of infant mortality as well. To address health disparities afflicting black people, Hunter says more medical schools are adjusting their admissions procedures. That means they're looking beyond test scores and waiving application fees, allowing more students to interview remotely and looking more seriously at the role of unconscious bias in their decisions. While there was acknowledgement of that, I believe in 2020, the death of George Floyd, the murder of black men and women really called into question this idea of a post-racial society. That acknowledgement is leading to more diversity on campus, says Joyce Sackey, Dean of Multicultural Affairs and Global Health at Tufts. We've been working hard at this. Sackey says the ongoing racial reckoning has served as inspiration for admissions officers to redouble their diversity efforts. Medical schools are like the Titanic. It's very difficult to move policies and processes, to be honest. But we are a medical school that has declared that we want to work towards becoming an anti-racist institution. This stand may have also signaled to applicants whom we accepted that maybe this is a place that they could make home. A major obstacle in making underrepresented students feel at home in medical school is finances. Graduates finish with a huge amount of debt. On average, more than $240,000. We perpetuate that issue because we give scholarships for merit and not scholarships for need. Dr. Cedric Bright is Dean of Admissions at East Carolina University's Medical School. He says staggering debt loads discourage many would-be doctors from even applying. We need to empower communities to want to raise money to say, we will pay for a student that comes from this community, and hopefully when they finish, they'll come back to our community and practice. That's what Sabrina Lima says she plans to do after she graduates from Tufts. I definitely want to open up clinics. I want to work in low-income areas. She sees herself serving first-generation immigrant families in Newark near her hometown. A lot of my early health experiences have been in Newark, so I definitely like have a heart for that community. Kirk Carapesa, GBH, Boston's local NPR. That's it for this edition of And Another Thing. I'm Dara Kennedy. And I'm Maya Schwader. Thanks for joining us. 